1: Life isn't limited to the tangible reality we experience on this earth, and that our worst adversaries can become our best teachers. It's a story of how forgiveness is the best revenge. Valerie Atellis interviews Kirsten Micklewait, the author of The Ghost Marriage, a memoir. Kirsten Micklewait is a professional copywriter and editor by day, and a writer of fiction and creative nonfiction by night. At 31, Kirsten has just returned to San Francisco from a bohemian year in Rome, ready to pursue a serious career as a writer, and eventually, she hopes, marriage and family. When she meets Steve Beckwith, a handsome and successful attorney, she begins to see that future materialize more quickly than she dared to expect. 22 years later, Steve has become someone quite different from the man Kirsten first met. Unemployed and addicted to opioids, He uses money and their two children to emotionally blackmail her. The couple separates, but just after their divorce is finalized, Steve is diagnosed with colon cancer and dies within the year, leaving Kirsten with $1.5 million in debts from properties that are no longer hers. It's only then that she finally understands. The man she married was a needy, addictive person wrapped in a shiny package. As she fights toward recovery, Kirsten begins to receive communications from Steve in the afterlife, leading her on an unexpected path to forgiveness. She's also an alumna of the Squaw Valley Community of Writers, the Napa Valley Writers' Conference, the Paris Writers' Conference, and the San Francisco Writers' Conference. Her short story, Parting with Nina, won first prize in the Ledges 2004 Fiction Awards competition. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area where she's at work on a new novel. Meet Kirsten at kirstenmicklewaite.com. Here is the interview with Kirsten Micklewaite.
0: In your own words, who is Kirsten Micklewaite?
2: Oh my gosh. Um, I am, I think after the completion of this book, I would call myself... A seeker, a lifelong learner, a flawed human being who is trying to sand off some of the rough edges. I'm a mother, I'm a writer, I'm a lover of beautiful things, and um, someone who's just trying to figure it out like everyone else. When
0: you say seeker, what are you seeking? Could you describe what you're seeking?
2: I think... I'm seeking a better understanding of how to live my life. I'm seeking more peace of mind in my life because I tend to be a very driven person and um, sometimes I'm too focused on the doing rather than the being. I'm seeking more love in my life, um, in, in the relationships that I already have and in new relationships, loving people in the way They want to be loved as opposed to projecting a certain kind of love on them. It's a lifelong lesson, isn't it?
0: What is your understanding and
2: idea of love as of today? I think love is the main thing that we're put on this earth to learn. I think that's the only thing that really matters at the end of our lives is how much we loved. And it's something that I think most of us don't give enough energy to, some Some people are just natural at loving, and they just exude a loving energy. And like you said before, I tend to be someone who lives more in my mind, and I, I react more from my mind than my heart in a lot of situations. So to me, love is an energy that is around us all the time, but sometimes we forget to tap into it, or we forget to see it, or we forget to give it. It's a living thing. It's a living thing that we, it's our mission on earth to learn how to deal in love, how to how to spend it and how to receive it.
0: I tend to, let's say, trust the idea that we can love unconditionally because that's what life is. Anything can happen. So why not flow with it? with anything that life brings us, absolutely anything. But that is, seems to be like um, very, it's a challenge for most of us to understand that because that would also include not accepting or not even being loving.
2: Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with how much love we were given when we were children. And if love was spent freely in our families when we grew up, it's usually not an issue for us. But if love was withheld or only given conditionally, that's a condition that we carry with us most of the rest of our lives. And it's, it takes an incredible uh, amount of work, I think, to overcome the lack of love and self-esteem if you didn't get it as a young child. Okay, before
0: I ask the question, we'll be talking a lot about forgiveness. I have lots of questions for you later on. But for now, Kirsten, I have this question for you. What is another word for forgiveness?
2: Perhaps acceptance, perhaps surrender, grace. Yeah, Grace. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm eager to talk more about this with you because there have been a lot of reactions to my book which revolves around the theme of forgiveness and a lot of people saying I could not have forgiven in that instance. So I'm I'm eager to talk with you about what it takes and and how people feel about it. People are very passionate about it. Yes, it's a great, great
0: topic or a great practice or perhaps a great understanding. I I want to understand more from your perspective what that is. Continue with the warm-up questions. Let me ask you this question. What do you feel is the purpose of your life at this time?
2: Um, You know, I'm just figuring that out. I've been a writer for most of my adult life. And I have always felt that writing and communicating and telling stories was part of my purpose, that that was a gift I was given um, and that whatever I do in this life would probably come through that medium. Um, but having just, well, this I've been working on this book for quite some time, but it's just launched um, in the last week or two. And since the book has come out, I have really come to believe that writing this book w- was one of my main assignments. Um, in this lifetime. Um, I think that it has opened up conversations uh, with people I know and people I don't know. So many people have told me that it's made them re-examine their own marriages and their own lives through a new lens. And I really feel like this is perhaps, besides giving birth to my two amazing children, perhaps the most important thing I've done yet. So yeah,
0: I have questions for you about uh, the inspiration for that, for your book. Yeah. So I, I really love to hear that writing. There's something about writing that I connect to healing.
1: I'm mm-hmm. not sure
0: if you do the same, but yeah, I'll ask you the question. Do you connect writing to healing? I would say after it's all done,
2: um, yeah, <laughs> yes. true. feel healed sometimes. Um, in fact, often when you're in the process It feels like anything but healing. Yes, torture. When the words don't come, um, you know, ask any writer, and they—that's the most miserable they can feel—is when the words don't come. But I was talking to um, a medium the other day, and she said, just the act of putting words on paper is creating healing energy in your body. That um, getting the words from inside your body to outside. It does something on the cellular level or, you know, some some level that I don't understand. Um, so I think for anyone, writing is healing. But I think when writing is your work, it really helps you sort out the issues that you're grappling with and the things that you feel are important to say in your life. I'm going to misquote her, but Joan Didion said, I write to figure out how I feel about things.
0: Yeah, it's so it's a release. It releases something from inside out. Like you said, it could be from within the cells, or it could be uh, from the psyche, the emotions, or who knows. Yeah, they call the spiritual body. So, but yeah, mm. there is a release. That's how I felt too.
2: Yeah, and you know, in in my case, and in the case of a lot of people who write memoir, you create scenes out of your memory, you go back and you revisit scenes, and you put them on the page, and then you can look at them objectively. And you can make sense of things that in the moment were just confusing and overwhelming and you didn't respond the right way or you you didn't understand or whatever. But you write them and you put them in a scene and all of a sudden it's like you're reading your own life. You, You instantly see what went on there. So it's a form of healing as well.
0: Yeah, how did you become a writer,
2: Kirsten? Well, I... I always loved reading and I enjoyed writing in school, but my main passion was dance. So I studied dance until I was 20 years old. And my intention was to become a professional, not a ballet dancer, but a modern dancer. And that was just my, what I felt was my calling. And then when I was 20... I was studying dance in college and I developed a knee problem. It wasn't even an injury. It was a weakness. It was an anatomical weakness in my knees that I just couldn't take all the jumping. And, you know, I saw all kinds of doctors for it and, and it was just kind of like, this is the way you're built. And I had to quickly pivot and find another major in college pretty quickly. And so the next Thing I thought of was literature just because I enjoyed reading. I enjoyed analyzing books and I graduated with an English degree. And, you know, from there, it was just a matter of publishing and public relations. And, you know, I got into development writing for fundraising and um, copywriting. It's a skill that's carried me through my entire career. Whereas if I'd been a dancer, I would have had to give it up Many many years ago, you know, it's just something I developed as a skill, and I'm still I still love doing it. I can see, I can hear why. (laughs) Do you still dance for fun? I love to dance. (laughs) I don't I don't do modern dance, but God help me if if you're at a holiday party with me, (laughs) I will I will make a complete fool of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Knows me. (laughs) Oh.
0: yeah, <laughs> Dancing, even talking about dancing kind of creates this very light, playful uh, environment. <laughs> it's I wonderful. I love dan- dancing too. That idea of not judging ourselves is so important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just feeling the joy. What is happiness to you these days? And what are some of the
2: misconceptions about happiness? Are there misconceptions about happiness? We, we all want it and we all know when we have it. Well, uh, I'll sort of frame it in the context of my book. I, you know, had this happy marriage and I had this amazing lifestyle. My my husband was a lawyer and we lived in the Napa Valley and we just lived this beautiful life. And we had, you know, I mean, we weren't the super wealthy, but we were living a really comfortable, nice life and traveling and um, living in a beautiful place. And, um, you know, then my marriage started to deteriorate and it almost became more painful living in such a beautiful place and with so much advantage because how because of how hollow it felt that if you're not genuinely happy on the inside the outer trappings do not work and i think a lot of people pretend that they do work for a really long time. But for me, when things really started to fall apart, I was eager to live the, leave the big house and you know, strike out on my own and live closer to the earth because it. I, I was craving authenticity. And I think happiness and authenticity are often connected. So, yeah, we're all looking for it. But I think finding what really genuinely enriches us inside is the ticket. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love your wisdom. Thank you, Kirsten, for sharing that. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting when you said that about having everything apparently, but not really being satisfied with what we have because we are not fulfilled inside. Yeah. And that brings me to The question about freedom, before we talk about your book, um, what is freedom to you? What is your idea of being free, finally?
2: For me, freedom is the ability to live your true self and your true life and celebrate it, be who you are in the world and use your gifts to inform, to celebrate, to meet other people, to really bring your inner self forward and live it loud and proud. And when we were living that previous life I just described, I found myself getting smaller and smaller in the service of trying to keep my family together and trying to keep my husband happy, and I was losing myself. I literally I had one night sitting on my bed when I literally felt like my soul was dying that I You know, I was losing who I was. And it was a very long road back, Valeria. It was a lot of work and a lot of fear and worry and scrambling. But over a period of about, I don't know, six to eight years, I created a life in which I could be myself. And I, you know, I supported myself and my children and I did what I loved. And It's like coming outdoors after being cooped up inside for a long time.
0: Yeah, there's something about nature that reminds us that it's okay to be where you're at and still experience peace or inner peace. That's a challenge for most of us to be present with whatever happens, but respond in a very peaceful way do what we have to do, but without feeling distressed and and broken and sad. Do you believe this is a a realistic goal to achieve, if it is a goal?
2: (laughs) I think it's a goal that we all should set for ourselves. Achieving it is a completely different story. Uh, You know, it's a lesson. Being here now is a lesson I'm still really struggling to learn. Um, I'm someone who makes lists every day of the week, including the weekends, and love checking off my to-do lists. And I, I I, feel like I get my self-esteem from being productive. And that's what I mentioned earlier, that I tend to focus more on the doing rather than the being. So, you know, I, I think that's a lesson that I'm I'm still struggling to learn. And it's still on my to-do list, let's put it that way. <laughs> It went back to your to-do list. That's cute. <laughs>
0: Everything that we have been, every the way we are right now, is already it. That might be a tough one to understand because we have this, um, yeah, the mind, I guess, the intellectual mind, the rational mind is always trying to get somewhere and be better, or somewhere better than we are now.
2: But we were given these minds, you know. We're we're hardwired in certain ways, so I think it's just part. We have to look at it as a um, a work in progress. I mean, some of us have already achieved some sort of enlightened state and, you know, yay for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but for the rest of us, I believe the reason we're put here on this earth is huh. to learn certain lessons and it's about working. It's it's about learning. Um, we're not here on vacation. We're here mm. to learn lessons. And so the struggle is part of it. It's, mm. it's what we're sent here to do, I believe. Yes, I agree. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Includes everything, the struggle, everything. Talk to me for a moment again, Kirsten, about the the intention. What was the main intention to write your
1: book?
2: I had gone through this very difficult period, um, probably five or six years of getting out from under. I should probably back up and just say that the The short version of the story is that when my ex-husband died, he left me with $1.5 million in debts um, that were his, but that were still attached to my name. And that was part of my struggle to get out. And many other horrible things happened at the same time. And it just felt like the universe was kind of playing this game of dodgeball with me, where every time I turned around, some, some other difficult circumstance rose, uh, reared its head. And I had absolutely no desire to go back and relive that or document it, spend four years writing about it. No, thank you. But everyone I met told me, you know, cause I loved complaining about it. That, that was helpful. <laughs> and I'd, I'd say, oh my God, or that happened. And My friends would say, you've got to write a book about that. And I would say, no, I'm not doing it. I was working with a spiritual life coach. Uh, I was seeing him every week to help me sort of learn some of the lessons we just talked about. And he kept saying, I keep seeing you writing a book. I think this is part of your path. I really believe you're supposed to write about this. And I kept resisting. And finally, um, I went Actually, earlier in my journey, I had seen a medium to just help me figure some of these things out. And she said that my late father, who had died about 10 years before, was coming through holding a copy of Eat, Pray, Love, the memoir by Elizabeth Gilbert. And she said, your dad is saying you should write a book like this. Well, Eat, Pray, Love was one of my favorite books. I mean, I would never in my wildest dreams think I could write a book Like that. But I think my dad knew that that was something that would call to me. And I thought, okay, if my dad is going to come through in a psychic reading, holding this book, telling me to write this book, I guess I'm supposed to do it. I guess I just have to sit down and do it. And so I sat down and started, and I just didn't stop until I was done and I found a publisher for it.
0: It's like the book was writing you in a way, trying to get written through you.
2: Yes, it was trying to get written. That's exactly how it feels to me. I think you put it really well. And what about the title, Kirsten? Uh, How did you come up with the
0: title of the book? I love, for some reason, kind of really made me smile when I saw it.
2: The Ghost Marriage. Yeah, titles are really hard. Ask any author. I think the title is often the hardest part. But with this book, this title came to me about halfway through the book and I just knew that it was the right title and I never considered another one. And it much later I turned out, I, I found out that um, another author had written a Chinese thriller 10 years ago with the same title. And I thought, oh no, I have to find another one. But my publisher said, no, it's not a big deal. You know, that book is 10 years old. You're writing a different kind of book. And it refers to the fact that I had all these struggles with my ex-husband while he was alive, and then he died of colon cancer three years after our divorce, and he continued to communicate with me um, in various ways, and I, to me, the story is about the continuation of that relationship after he died, that we continued to talk, we continued to work things through, and kind of, partner in a bizarre way. And I I truly believe that he has collaborated with me in the writing of this book, in the publishing of this book, and in getting it out. I, I just feel like he is on the other side, smiling at this, even though he doesn't come off looking very good. <laughs> <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> we assume a different
0: um, perspective, and then we become love itself, it seems to me. <laughs> He's over it now. He doesn't care. Right. <laughs> um, so talk to me about these communications. How did that happen? In what form and yeah, frequency?
2: Yeah, so um, I don't consider myself um, very psychic. I mean, I know we all are, but I don't feel like that sense is very developed in me. But I have had some strange things happen in my life. And after Steve died, um, there were a lot of kind of electromagnetic things that happened. Um, My daughter was watching TV and she said, why does it keep changing channels? And I kept going through all the reasons. What, you know, is the DVD recording? Is it this, is it that? No. And I said, I finally said, well, what show is it switching to? And she said, oh, it's this show I used to watch with daddy. And I said, well, I think that's your dad. So then I was thinking, even though, in my head, I was still really angry with him. And I said, you know, don't think I wanna talk to you, but if I did wanna talk to you, what would the sign be? And um, I tried to think what a a clever thing would be that if I saw it, I would know that was him. And the first thing that came to mind was a car that we had leased early in our marriage. Um, He'd gotten a, a car allowance through his law firm and immediately went out and bought a luxury car. And it was a brown Mercedes and um, it came with a beige interior. But the salesman said, you know, it really looks, it's a light brown, it really looks better with a dark brown interior. So we ordered that and we drove that car for five years and then we turned it in on something else. But every time I was on the freeway, if I saw a light brown Mercedes, I would look to see if it had the chocolate brown interior, because that would be our car, you know, it was custom and you just, and I never saw that car. I mean, I saw plenty of light brown Mercedes, but I never saw the one with the chocolate brown interior. So that was the first thing that came to mind. And then I thought, you know, that's terrible. The first thing I think of is a car is a luxury, car, you know, so instead, I thought of the word Carabinieri which is an Italian word it's their military police and it was just a word that we used to tell a joke and that was the punchline and I thought if I see the word Carabinieri in the next week I'll know it's him and a few days later I was watching TV and I wasn't even watching I was making breakfast in the kitchen the TV was on the news and it was a story set in Italy but it had nothing to do with the police and the screen filled with the word kata like in two chai letters it just focused on that word and I thought wow okay I hear I, you're here got it thank you and a couple of days after that I was walking the dog and I came back in front of my house um, just walking past the neighbor's driveway and there was a chocolate brown or a light brown Mercedes and I went and looked in and it was the chocolate brown interior. And I just thought, you've got to be kidding me. I don't, in fact, well, the excerpt I'm going to read refers to that, but um, it just, it blew my mind, you know, two things in a week that I'd specifically set as objectives and somehow he found a way. Do you now believe in life after life? I absolutely do. I believed in it before because um, I've done a lot of reading over the years and I have had, you know, occasional sessions with mediums where, you know, if I was at a, a crossroads or wanted to make a decision. So I would had positive experiences about it before, but I'd never had something this personal and important and this, just the, the ability to communicate with my husband, the working with a medium, and realizing that he really is just on the other side of a very thin veil, that was what enabled me to walk this path of forgiveness. There's no way I could have done it otherwise. Um, so I just, to me, it, it was life changing. It was, it reinforced a belief in something larger than what I live in the here and now. And it gave me an optimism. It gave me a lightness that I wouldn't have if I believed that it's all over at the time of death. Um, So it's really served me well and it just makes sense to me. What was the
0: point where you knew you had
2: forgiven him? Well, when this whole process started, you know, when he died, things uh, shoes just started dropping right and left um, because he had foreclosed on a couple of properties, he had maxed out credit cards that were still in my name, he had done all kinds of things, but I didn't know everything about them because all the mail all the delinquent notices were going to his mailbox and when he died his daughter had his mail forwarded to me and every day it's like I'd get these bombs in my mailbox of you know this is going to the credit reporting agency and here's another foreclosure it was I mean every day was just a disaster Um, so I set in my mind, because I'm the mind person, I set a deadline or a, a goal of forgiving him by the time my credit was back to good standing. Well, that would take eight years. You know, I, I net, even though I was able to sell off a couple of the properties and deal with the foreclosures and the credit cards, it still impacted my credit. I mean, my credit went down to an F for a while. And it takes eight years for those things to roll off your credit. So in the meantime, I just thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll take care of business down here, but I am not forgiving him until I am made whole again financially. But within a year of his death, I was talking to a friend, and she also happens to be, it sounds like I I run with the gypsies and the sidekicks. <laughs> I do know a few <laughs> who have to make a And she said, Stephen is, you know, standing right here with me. And, you know, he loves you. He's always loved you. He's sorry. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, not ready at all. But in that same conversation, I heard a voice in my head. And I believe it was Steve's voice. And he said, isn't it time to stop telling yourself stories about all the bad times? And something just... It's like something unlocked in my heart. It's nothing I intended to do. It's nothing I decided or chose or even wanted at that point. I was still wrapped in my fury. And I hung up the phone and I put my head down on my desk and I started sobbing. And I said, I forgive you, Steve Bickford. I mean, it is not the way I planned it. And ask anybody who knows me. I am a planner. And when I plan something, I do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. An opening, a heart opening (laughs) and, you know, of just letting it go. And I think my spirit just understood eight more years of anger is not going to do you any good. Just let it go now and then, you know, finish cleaning up. So that's that's how it happened. And, you know, a lot of people have not a lot. A few people have um, written in their reviews of the book I could never have forgiven that man for what he did to her. I could never have forgiven him. And what I want to say to those people is I could not have forgiven him either if he were still alive, if he were still doing the damage, or even if he was sorry on this side, it probably would have taken me longer. But I have forgiven him because he's not that person anymore. And my work with the medium made me realize this this all happened in my second reading with her, and she said, you had a contract with this man. You both agreed to teach each other lessons in his life. And he decided, he, he did all this to help you learn that lesson. And he's over there right now saying, I played my role perfectly. I did everything you asked me to do. And the psychic said, he did so at considerable expense to himself. I mean, when this man died... He was in physical pain, He was in psychic pain. He was um, facing bankruptcy. He'd lost his you know part of his family. He'd lost his job, he'd become addicted to drugs. This man did not end a happy man. But for him to go through all that, for me to walk this forgiveness path, how could I not thank for that? if I believe in that larger picture, How could I not thank him and forgive him and say, you did this for me?
0: Do you now believe that, um, with your mind even, believe that this is how it works, that we plan and choose to be here and go through this suffering to learn lessons?
2: Yes, I absolutely believe it. I believe it because I've read a lot of books of people who have received similar messages. Um, anybody who has any psychic ability, they they say that basically the same thing. We come into this life with a blueprint and we have chosen that blueprint for ourselves to help advance ourselves toward enlightenment. You know, in this life, I want to learn patience and forgiveness and unconditional love or whatever it is we choose so that all of the hardships we go through, if we can understand that we picked these things for our own growth, then we're no longer victims. And then we're we're conscious, we're aware, we're, you know, we may not like it. I mean, the, none of this is fun. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. But if you go through it with the idea that This is going to get me somewhere where I have chosen to go. It makes it so much easier. And I wonder a lot of times if it always
0: takes suffering for us to understand these deeper lessons about life.
2: I think it does. You do. Yeah, do you believe that? Hmm. I do. And, And, you know, there's different degrees of suffering. One thing that I told myself when I was going through the thick of it was it's only money. My children are okay. We're all healthy. This too shall pass. We can survive this. I don't know if I could have been so forgiving if one of my children had been hurt or if, you know, if my own health had suffered. Um, There's so many, so many greater lessons to learn than just money, losing money. But that was the suffering that was directed at me, and um, I got through it. Yeah, but also
0: depends on the value we give to whatever it is. Then it, yeah, I mean, it's equivalent to losing a child sometimes for somebody else who doesn't value money but values a connection with children. And then, yeah, it just depends on, on the perspective and perception. Yeah, I love the chapter of your book that I read. The I think it's in The Spiritual Life Coach, Arjuna. I'm not sure if how you pronounce his name. But yeah, what he says, he said to you at some point, beautifully said, uh, you need to learn to be happy without the conditions, mm-hmm. which has to do with uh, unconditional happiness. Everything is happening As it should, he said to you, with perfect timing, let go of all those expectations. Surrender, surrender, and surrender. And above all, you must open your heart. And then he said something else that caught my attention. He said, you said, I thought of how I loved my children and how I loved my mother and sister and friends. But my heart is open, you said to him. And then he said, yes, to everyone but yourself. Mm-hmm. That brings me to the topic of self-love. What is your message on self-love as of this moment?
2: Well, speaking as a woman, I think it's the hardest kind of love. I think we love everyone. We give our time, we give our resources, We, especially when it comes to our children. But I think we focus on giving everyone what they need, and we come last. And since my children have grown and I've started my life over basically in a lot of ways, I have more time to spend with myself and I, I have more patience with myself and, and more compassion for myself. And I just think, I don't know, I think it's the hardest thing in the world for women to put themselves first. And it's a message we just have to keep putting out there is put on your life mask for your oxygen mask first before everybody else's because you're the hub. You know, they need you and they need to be happy, you know. True. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I I think that's another one of those lifelong lessons where we're never done with that one.
0: Yeah. uh, Wow. That's something that uh, I talk a lot, hear a lot about, I write about it, and um, yeah, unconditional self-love, I go a little one step further. (laughs) Unconditional self-love, it's a must, and and yes, especially for women, although men, they need that too. Um, Everyone needs that, but yeah, especially for women and mothers, especially mothers. I have some ending questions for you, but before I ask them, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book?
2: Sure. I will read um, just a short scene. So this is uh, about my second visit to the medium. Um, It refers to the the phenomena I just described of Steve making himself known to me. Yet another January rolled around, impossible to believe that it was already 2015, three full years since Steve's death. With all of my work around forgiveness, I finally felt ready to face him, beyond just talking to him in my head. So I called the intuitive Karen Peterson's office and booked a private reading for a date around his 66th birthday. Karen greeted me warmly. We settled in, and she sat silent for a few minutes, eyes closed, breathing deeply. Finally, she spoke. It's a male energy, a father figure. Has your dad passed? My dad had been the primary spirit to come through in my previous reading with Karen. I'd wondered if he'd be in control again this time. Yep, I said. She nodded, but then cocked her head. Where's your dad buried? His ashes are scattered at the base of a tree in Yosemite. No, this isn't him. This spirit is showing me a cremation, but also a burial in a cemetery. Ah, that would be my ex-husband Steve, I said. I figured he'd show up today. Yes, he's been very clear about being buried in the cemetery. It looks like you visit him often, fairly often. He's showing me you visiting his grave, and every time you do, he's right there with you. I nodded. A name that's coming up is Michael. That was Steve's middle name. So he's right here. Is there anything you want to ask him? Here's what I keep struggling with, I said. I know that Steve was some kind of teacher for me, but specifically, what was the lesson I was supposed to learn from him? I felt like he was standing right there, but behind a wall. I couldn't see him to read his lips. Karen listened, then said, to persevere, to still be strong despite challenges, to be a good role model for your children. Well, I've certainly tried to do that, I said. "'He's nodding,' Karen said. "'He's so proud of the way you've done that.' Finally, it seemed I had the rational Steve back, the partner who wanted me to succeed, who saw my best self. He was on the other side of the veil, but he was an ally again. I felt a dark cloud lift from somewhere deep inside. The oppressive weight of his disapproval peeled off my shoulders and back. Karen spoke again. "'He's showing me an antique key, and keys usually symbolize cars.' Did you recently buy a car? Do you need a car? I chuckled, ask him if it's a brown Mercedes. He's laughing, what's that about? I told her the story of the Mercedes with the chocolate brown interior parked outside my house. Honestly, Karen said, I have no idea how they do that but I hear stories like this all the time.
0: Do you still feel that you are married to him?
2: Have you moved down with relationships? Nobody has ever asked me that question before. I feel spiritually married to him. Um, uh-huh. He appears in my dreams a lot. Um, do I feel married to him on this plane? No, but nor have I found anybody else that I, you know, want to be married to. On this yeah. plane. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. part of the legacy is that I, I'm still very leery about men and about um, men who appear one way and then become something else. So that's something I'm still um, working through. I don't feel the need to be married again. I feel like I kind of did a lot in the first <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. But I'm in a
2: relationship with Steve now. And uh-huh. especially since this book has come out, I just can't, I can't tell you. I really feel like he's just so happy that this book is out there and that it might lead other people to forgiveness. I kind of feel like that's what we are supposed to do together. I feel a lot of love from you since the beginning of the interview. Like my
0: body's been reacting goosebumps and yeah, that's a confirmation of love. That's, That's so lovely to hear. So my last question to you is what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment?
2: Three things I know for sure. As I said before, I think life is a university, not a vacation. I feel strongly that... What we experience on Earth is just uh, one chapter of our existence, and um, it's much bigger than what we see or experience down here. And what's the third thing? Really that it's all about experiencing love and joy. You know, the more we do that, the farther along we go. Nothing else really matters as much as that.
0: Thank you so much, Kirsten, for for your presence, beautiful, loving presence, uh, the wisdom you share, the healing message through your book, just writing the book, doing that for yourself, which is self-love and everything else in between that could be felt today. Thank you. Thank you,
2: Valeria. It's been a pleasure.
0: And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services and future projects?
2: Um, My website is www.kirstenmicklewaite.com. Everything's on there, including places uh, that people can buy the book online. Um, The book is on Amazon. Uh, It's through all major retailers. Um, You can just go online and buy it. And um, I'm on Goodreads also, and Amazon is an author. So if you want to find out more about me, you can go there.
1: Wonderful.
0: Thank you so much again. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Valeria. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Kirsten Micklewaite and her work, please visit kirstenmicklewain.com.